This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Resilience is something we all want, but how do we get it? In this episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Dr. Den Houder, who offers a fresh perspective of the inner workings of resilience. Dr. Den Houder was puzzled why one individual would surmount unbelievable challenges to lead a happy life, while another was stuck with just half the worries. From her successful clients, seven resilient qualities emerged and she became passionate about sharing this powerful message. Valeria interviews Dr. Catherine Denhauder. Catherine's early years were spent on a hobby farm in southwest Minnesota. Living on the prairie in the heart of the Midwest taught her many lessons about resilience, the blessings of simple faith, compassion for one's neighbors, and the value of honesty as the bedrock for good relationships. She attended Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she received her teaching credentials. Her first years of teaching were in the Wisconsin public school system. But the fresh beauty of Michigan and the state's aspiring people wooed her back to the area. After training in the Montessori method in Chicago, she became a directress at Marywood Montessori School in Grand Rapids. There, she met her late husband, Len Denhauder. They raised four children on a small hobby farm near Lowell, a small burg east of Grand Rapids. Catherine pursued a doctorate in psychology at Michigan State University and began her private practice in 1989. For 25 years, she had an immensely fulfilling career as a psychologist. It was from treating hundreds of clients that she formulated her theory of resilience. Also, after becoming a widow in 2006, her own resilience was extremely challenged. From all the years of helping others through torturous waters, she was able to help herself. Today, she will be sharing her insights about resilience. Dr. Den Houder is the author of four books. Two of them are nonfiction, Van, A Memory of My Father, and Resilience, A Workbook. The most recent books are two historical fiction books, Abigail's Exchange and Cobalt Chronicles. These books articulate the struggles of women who, by the end of the novel, prove themselves to be both resilient and compassionate. Here is the interview with Dr. Catherine Denhauder. In your own words, who is Catherine Denhauder? Well, I am a woman who is an older, uh, in my older adult years, and I have had a full life of raising children, four of them, 
And I had a practice as a psychologist for 25 years. And before that, I was a Montessori teacher. So I'm at a time in my life when I feel wisdom just coming out of me like a fountainhead. And I want to share as much as I've learned throughout these years. Mm, That sounds great. Thank you. I have a few warm-up questions for you before we talk about resilience. The first question is, what is life? Well, life is God-given. We have, uh, we're earthen vessels, but we have uh, spiritual and heavenly goals. And those blessings come down from heaven as we walk through this earth. So that connection is critical for a life well-lived. Life is a gift. It is something that we cherish as a society and as an individual and something we every day we nurture that life, whether it be our own life or the lives of others. Since you mentioned the word God, I'll ask you this question now. I was saving for later. Uh, What, where, and who is God? Uh, God is everywhere. Uh, He is a spirit and he resides in my heart and in others' uh, hearts as well. And it is the the spirit of loving and giving to others. And, you know, the promises of salvation are come to those that have the Christian belief. The follow-up question after the one about life, what is life? What do you think is the opposite of life? Darkness, not being aware or cognizant of the beauty that's around you. It's just choosing to block those so that you're not able to see and understand. Oh, wow. Interesting that you use the word choice, choosing. I'm wondering why would we choose to be in the dark? Oh, there's so many uh, reasons why that can happen. Uh, Many times it's not the individual's fault, it's circumstances. But, and that's my writing is about resilience and transcendence and how you move beyond that so you can claim that beautiful part of life for yourself. Yeah, I like that a lot, Catherine. So it might be just the idea or the being in that position of knowing that you have choices. Most people don't know that. Oh, it's moving from that unconscious self to the conscious self. And that's a a lengthy process for some, but it's a very important part of a, a life well lived. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Freedom is an ability to choose, to find who you are, a freedom from encumbrances so that uh, your, your walk is heading in a forward moving direction. What is your greatest joy? Uh, you know, without a doubt, raising my children. My background, I, in, when I studied uh, to be a clinical psychologist, I studied a human development And uh, so to watch my children go through those stages and become very honorable and caring adults is probably my biggest joy in my life. That makes so much sense to me, although I'm not a mother. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? It's really to understand that man really isn't the center of the universe, if God is. And once you accept that, things fall into place. It's when you put too much credence in the power of man, then things become problematic. So it's very important to recognize the importance of God's presence in the world. Most people answer love when I ask that question about the world's greatest need. 
I guess I'll be asking you that question as well that I usually ask most of my guests. What is love to you? Well, it first starts with accepting the love that God has for you. Then it's translated and transformed into your relationships with others. So it's putting it in that order. First God and then in your heart and then it comes out and emanates toward other people. So that's what I see as a real genuine sustainable love. It's the agape love that everyone wants because it's a selfless love. Mm, unconditional love, right? Yeah. What do you think is the purpose of your life? Well, I think to be the mother of my children was number one because I watched them affect the world in good ways. But also uh, to show how resilience impacts lives, how working toward transilience or transcendence becomes a way to to help others grow. I, I'm really a, like a cheerleader or an encourager, uh, somebody who says, you're on the right path, let's keep moving forward. And I'm all about transformation and uh, allowing people, giving them the space and the understanding they need to move forward and become uh, loving human beings. Mm. Oh, wow. That sounds really good to me. <laughs> you mentioned the word transformation. And this is a question that I normally ask some of my guests, not all of them. What is the difference between transformation and change? I think it's a perspective. So when you're transforming, it's from the inside uh, outward. Change is something that is almost forced on us. Change is a demand. And then what we do is we take it in and we transform. So that whole interior process that we have is activated uh, to make that transformation and in response to the change necessary. So in a way, transformation supports change. Yes. And that's what we are going to be talking about uh, in a few minutes, resilience. Why did you become a psychologist, Catherine? Uh, looking around and seeing how many problems were in the world and how interpersonal relationships are affected when you don't have a clear understanding of, of what's going on. It's when I became moved out of that unconscious and into that conscious self, I needed more education. I needed more understanding. I needed how to to uh, really do the scientific experiments and understand the research uh, in human development. So that's what propelled me into the field to increase my awareness and to help me do that process of unconscious to conscious. I like that. They use the word consciousness and awareness. That is very much connected to spirituality and why not religious beliefs as well. Psychology doesn't seem to be connected with spirituality, but in a way it is, right? Oh, it, it's it, the start is a philosopher. John James is the one that started it and he was a philosopher. So the meaning, questions about meaning of life, and why are we here? Who are we? Understanding the psyche is, is really the, the origination of psychology. So it is very spiritual, very uh, much looking at the mind and soul of a person. Yeah, self-awareness, self-knowledge, right? To me, there's nothing more spiritual than that. Like you mentioned earlier about connecting with God at a personal level first in order to emanate, to manifest that love to others or into the world, right? 
Um, what is your own definition of resilience? Well, there are two parts. The first part is I'd like to use the image of a rubber band. And let's say we take the rubber band and we really stretch it. And that's kind of akin to the stressors and tribulations we have in life. So we're just stretched to the max. And the ability to have it go back to its original shape and size would indicate a person who can handle the stress and tribulations. So that's one part of it. But there's also another part that is so key that oftentimes people overlook, and that is the transcendence. And this is the part where you're able to get the big picture, how you fit into that big picture, and to have what I call the relief of the big picture. So you're not so bowled over by day-to-day occurrences because you know that the the world is in God's hands, uh, that this will not be... Uh, forever, that things will change and you can then transform and become resilient as you travel through whatever God has planned for you. So it's two, it's the elasticity, going back to what you were originally, but also how to tackle problems from a, a transcendent point of view. That sounds really good to me. And I'll be asking you lots of questions to explore that idea. I know you have a theory, resilience theory. Would that be connected to what you just said? Yes. That what I just explained, that's what the theory is. It's the two parts, the elasticity and also the transcendence. So how and when was your resilience challenged the most? Well, I was widowed in 2006. And it was the four children that I had with my husband, Len, just uh, the joys of both Len and my life. We just enjoyed our children so much. He died very suddenly of a heart attack. And so I was left with, you know, picking up the pieces and trying to make a go of it. And I remember going to bed, not sleeping well, but just spending a lot of the, the night just praying going into relaxation, doing whatever I needed to do just to try to get a good night's sleep. So I was challenged and stretched to the max. And I didn't really come back to my own shape until I was able to rely on that transcendence, understand the big picture, see myself in the scheme of things, uh, and allow other people to help me through that. And once I was able to do that, then I could become resilient. And so now when I face difficulties, I immediately use those strategies that I learned during that time. You talk about seven resilient qualities. What are the seven resilient qualities that you found in your clients and how did you discover them? Well, when I was done with my practice after 25 years, I decided I needed to write a book. I was given so many jewels and treasures from the clients that I served that I I didn't want to just dismiss them and not have a place where I could compile that information. And that's why I wrote the book, Resilience, a workbook, uh, powering through adversity to find happiness. And what I found in my clients that were successful, and that's key, I decided not to go into the pathology of everything. I decided instead to look at, okay, what made my clients successful? And out of that came seven resilient qualities. And not all of them had all seven, but they had enough that they were able to make it through and sustain the therapeutic goals that we had together. 
One of them, the first one, which is very important, is the nature. Being able to go into nature and find solace. Just to go outside of your door and look at birds recreating, blossoms blooming, and to spend time in nature and just feel the healing that can come from loving God's creation. So that was one thing I noticed they they had. Also, there was a mindset for adventure. These individuals that were successful, their beta was turned on. And beta is a brainwave that you're onto something. You know, that's turned on and means that they were about going about life with a sense of excitement and ready to see what was around the corner. And they had an interesting spark for living and a drive to uh, celebrate what they they were experiencing. So those two qualities, and there's also what I call dark walking. And this comes from a terminology from Barbara Taylor's book on walking through the dark. And this is being able to face the dark part of ourselves and recognize Mm -hmm. that we're a whole, that our lightness and our darkness actually creates one whole person. And we tend to avoid that dark side, but we learn so much from that dark side that we need to stand and look at it and eyeball it and learn from it. And then, and that's the fears, that's our limitations, that's our feeling of, of failure, all of those dark things we have to look at to really become strong, resilient individuals. Then the fourth one is being able to be creative. When we're in the space of scarcity or needing something or wanting something, did we just passively endure it or did we creatively problem solve through that? And I found people who were problem solvers were the ones that were able to sustain the therapeutic goals and to have a happy life. Then the fifth one was being able to connect with others. And all the researchers who have done work on resilience come up with the same one. People who are able to connect with helpful people when they need it are able to endure and are um, strong, resilient individuals. The sixth one is to be reflective. So recognizing that the only way you can go forward is you have to go backwards to understand what happened so that you can make the changes to transform into your future. So to be reflective is a very important quality. And it's painful sometimes because there are fears, there are failures um, that we have to address so that we can make the transformation that we need to. And then the last one is the finding a mission or a purpose. And when you're going through that dark part of yourself and you're struggling hard, to find a mission or something that you can, a purpose that you can hang your head on that will guide you through this. That is really important. So those are the seven qualities that um, are important for uh, creating a resilient life. And they make so much sense to me. I have some questions for you, for some of them, maybe not all of them. Um, the, you say the third one, the dark walk. That is so interesting, facing our darkness and fears. I'm wondering what are the methods, the most effective methods to do that? Well, 
I like the book by John James and Russell Friedman. And the name of that book is a grief recovery handbook. It's a very simple book, not very long, but it shows you how to effectively go through grieving. And, you know, grief is something all of us face. And as we age, we have more losses and more losses. And we know the least about how to walk through those losses. So if we can get a handle of how to get through those and become a full human being without a lot of blockages and without being stymied or numbed by life, it's very important that we address that. And that grief recovery handbook does that because losses aren't just people. It could be a loss of innocence in childhood. It could be a loss of a job. It could be a loss of family, um, high fa- uh, good family functioning. Uh, there, there are so many uh, losses that we, we deal with on many levels. That's a very good point. Yeah, it's not just losing people we love, which might be the most painful experience, but also other losses. Yeah, we, my experience losses every day, actually, if we really pay attention. Yeah. Um, for you, what really helped to um, get through painful loss? What was the most effective method in your case? Well, I went to therapy in my situation, and I was in therapy twice a week for nine months. And uh, then I used, on my own, I used um, John James and Russell Friedman's book, uh, Grief Recovery Handbook for Myself. And I remember writing a letter to my late husband and uh, just expressing all the joys that I had when I was with him, and also the regrets, and just being very honest about that. And uh, it, that was very helpful. And I made sure all my children got that book, and they all went through it and followed the steps. And uh, many comments came from them that it was probably the most effective strategy. Yes, yeah, so writing. I was about to ask you another question about the sixth um, resilient qualities. You mentioned being reflective. I had a question here about writing and journaling. So I guess that's another method that we can use. A great method, a healing method, writing, right? It is. Because think about uh, writing. It is not just pen and paper. It is you're taking all of your emotions and you're putting them down in a word. Rather than having them just fill you in this unexplainable blob inside of you, it becomes a refinement of those feelings so that you can start to manage them. So journaling is it's just critical in the process. It might be also clarity. Thoughts, they become, or emotions, feelings, they become words. It's easier to see clearly what's happening. Because if we are always in our head all the time, it can get confusing. And you mentioned the, the seventh really important one, finding purpose and a mission. Uh, how do we know when we found our mission and our purpose in life? It's a sense of inner peace. It is realizing that other people are listening. It's getting that sense of fulfillment. Um, the aha moments come more frequently. It is something quite uh, tangible rather than, you know, out there uh, nebulous. It's more a tangible feeling of, yes, I am I'm on the right path. So it's more like a feeling, yeah, that's clear. <laughs> that's really easy to know, right? When, yeah, when we are feeling joyful and inner peace, I believe that. That's such a, a wonderful state um, of mind to be in. 
And I noticed that you left out um, spirituality or religious beliefs and also self-love. Is this somehow those two components uh, already connected to them? When the common denominator for all of my clients that were successful, they had a faith. And, you know, Christianity is where I come from. But that's not the only faith system that works. There are many. But the common denominator is that they recognize that they're part of a larger scheme of things. And that faith is so critical to really sustaining the therapeutic gains. What I found with individuals that didn't have that faith, therapy would become like a revolving door. They would come in when they were troubled, they'd go out after they felt better, but they'd be back in in just a short while, all over again. But those that had a faith base were able to sustain health longer on their own. Yeah, that resonates a lot. Um, what is the difference between faith, hope, and trust? Are they all the same or somehow different? They're different, yeah. Faith is a, a, a belief that our world is in good hands and that we'll be taken care of. Just a faith believing that hope is, it comes from that. I wish I could put the scripture on that, but hope is that it will get better. Trust is, faith and trust are probably the closest in my mind, you know, where you, you have faith and trust in God that he will protect you and love you. Yeah. What about self-love, Catherine? Is it part, could be part of this, um, of the, uh, the qualities as well? I, I, self-esteem is so critical. It's not an inflated sense of self. It is a self that is reality-based. So they, they recognize that they're part of, of, just part of a larger scheme of things. But the self-statements that you make to yourself are so key in your self-esteem that when you have negative tapes, it's essential that you change those tapes, especially if they're distorted and not reality-based. Otherwise, you live through life and make bad choices many times. So it's, it's very important to have really good, healthy, reality-based self-talk. Yes. Yeah, I like that. And it's not selfish or a narcissistic way of living. It's, it's quite the opposite. The word already says love, so love is part of it. It's not possible to be selfish when you love. I don't think so. What is sad? Sad, gem, lobe? Not sure if I pronounced that right. Oh, it's an <laughs> That is kind of odd, but it it really is work magic for my clients. And basically, it is all of the thought distortions that was developed by cognitive behavioral therapists, that's CBT. And basically, it's looking at the should, the all or nothing thinking. So that's SAD and disqualifying the positive. It would be the SAD acronym and labeling overgeneralization, personalization, and uh, emotional reasoning. That would be the lope. And uh, the gym part, uh, the middle part, would be jumping to conclusions, inappropriate maximization and minimization, and mental filter. So that would be the gym part. So sad gym lope. And it was a way that my clients could organize the thought distortions and discover um, where there's 
what there was, what they were saying to themselves that were distorted, and then change it around so it was stated positively. Oh, wow. It is connected to a, a test or some sort of um, survey or... It, it was a task. So they would come in and we would start with the shoulds and we'd analyze what they were saying to themselves and write that down. And then we'd rephrase it so that it was said in a healthy way. Yeah. So what I liked about that method is it was pretty comprehensive. So you didn't miss a whole lot. So we would go through and, and uh, discuss each one and then rephrase the distortions that we were saying to ourselves uh, in the therapy or it, it, in our day-to-day life. Yeah, I like that. Is that also, it has a relationship with affirmations? Oh, with affirmations, yeah. In fact, when you rephrase them and put it in reality-based phrasing, then throughout your day, you say them over and over to yourself. Like, I will rehearse success. Um, I will do the best I can. I will accept my uh, failures and learn from them. Those kinds of statements become self-affirmations. And some of my clients would put them on the mirror. Some of them would put them on the steering wheel of their car (laughs) to really remind themselves that this is what they needed to do to have a healthier self-esteem and then to make better choices. Mm. I like the word you use, reminder. Because a lot of times that's all, that's really what we need, a reminder of these qualities, the amazing qualities that's within us. And for some reason, it's challenging to access in difficult um, times. So I love what he said as a reminder. We're just being reminded of those qualities within. So how is resilience connected to relaxation? And why is relaxing important? Well, Relaxation is critical, especially in my therapy when I work with my clients, because when you're anxious, you're, you're really in a prison and you're unable to think clearly and to work effectively on your issues. So it becomes essential. And many times we would do relaxation before we would even start the treatment. Um, I found that people would block much more readily if they were either anxious or depressed and we, the work would just, uh, just be futile in many cases. And we all know that stress kills. Stress right. creates a, a life that is difficult, very difficult. Right. And it's important to find a way to route it out and to resolve it so that it doesn't bog us down. I agree 100%. What are some of the methods, Catherine? Um, would you say meditation? Um, well, you know, there is three parts. Well, first of all, you have to become aware of the stress. So you have to do checklists and talk with your therapist about um, what your individual stressors are and what it does to your body. So be, being conscious of it is, is number one. And number two, then you try to prevent it as much as you can. And that would be setting goals, maybe changing perspectives, relationships. That prevents stress. But but you and I know that it's going to come in there some way or another. So it becomes essential to do what I call cancel the ill effects of stress. And that comes down to meditation, uh, visualization, uh, yoga, uh, changing your sleeping habits, exercising, so those are the ways that that you can employ to uh, 
cancel the ill effects of stress. And also the first resilient quality you mentioned, um, just being around nature. That is so relaxing. Yeah, that's wonderful. So talk to me about visualization and also mindset of thankfulness and the relationship with resilience. Well, there's, there are weighted blankets put over you that just reduce the anxiety that you feel. Yeah, and that would be a very good way to cancel the ill effect of stress, just to just kind of put you like in a womb. The thankfulness is really an important part. And what was the first question that you had? What was it about? Um, uh, visualization. Oh, visualization. Yes, I use that in my practice because it's about rehearsing success. And um, I used Abraham Lincoln as an example many times in my book because he was a master at that. He would visualize what he wanted and he would get it. Wow. <laughs> and wow. when people would ask him, well, how did you manage to pull this off, you know, becoming president and, you know, getting a law degree? And he would say, visualization, I rehearsed success. I was determined in my mind to do it. And then I did it. And um I, especially in the summer months in August, right before school would start every fall, I would have mothers bring their children in because the child would get what we call school phobia. So my goal then was to rehearse success for them. So as soon as they found out who their teachers were, what classes they were going to take, and we'd find out much, as much as we could about the teachers and then try to uh, ascertain what the fears were about this class. And we'd get them all out with strategies of how they would solve those dilemmas. And then we would go into a deep relaxation, progressive muscle relaxation. I'm such a believer in that. And then we would talk through solving those problems effectively. And then at the end of the school year, we would visualize a successful school year because we were able to solve those problems as they arose. And so this was a a systematic way of helping children arrive at a successful conclusion of the school year. It was very effective. So it's more imagination than actually looking at something. Some people, they create, I think they call vision boards or... Well, that's a component of it. That for sure, that is one thing that can be done. The psycho-cybernetics uh, psycho does that, where you, you see yourself in a, a certain successful position. And then you look at that over and over again, it becomes part of you. Where I used it in my practice was for children in school. And also, you know, for, to help parents with, with their children to um, visualize what an experience would be like and then have them uh, do chewable chunks and reward them each time they successfully completed part of that total visualization. And so I used it in two ways, particularly with school children. I never heard it that way. Rehearsal success. That's the first time. Uh, and then the mindset of thankfulness. Is that the same as being grateful? Yes. And what they have found, there's been a lot of research recently about that because it seems to activate a certain part of the brain. And what they have found is that it's impossible for our brain to feel anxious and thankful at the same time. So if we want to get rid of that anxiety... If we can train ourselves to move into a state of thankfulness, we can shift away from that anxiety. Right. Anxiety is connected to fear, isn't it? Going back to the 
facing our fears in the darkness. Yeah. Would you like to add anything that my questions did not cover, Catherine, or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions? Okay. The seven resilient qualities, connecting with nature, openness to change, dealing with the dark, overcoming scarcity and creativity, connecting with people, the power of reflection and finding a purpose are underscored by deep spirituality. The lesson learned from the 15 resilient personalities presented here is that thankfulness and transcendence become foremost in their journey toward resilience. Yeah, and it really, really resonates. So I have a few more questions for you unrelated to, uh, to the topic. Would you like to add anything else? No, I think you did. You should do a good job <laughs> those questions out, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know you helped me with it, but yeah, right. We, I think we explored the topic of resilience um, really well. So my final question is, how do you define success? What is to be successful to you? To be fulfilled, to know that you've helped people in this world and that you have a sense of what I call generativity, where you realize that you have uh, lifted up a generation to meet the challenges that they will be facing in the future. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? That broken dreams are hard to cha- hard to rechannel your energies once you've had a, a dream that has been broken and destroyed. That it takes everything you have to find a, a life that's meaningful and continue on the path that you've set for yourself. And that's resilience, isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) Do you believe in unconditional self-love? I do. I think you cannot have too much self-esteem. But don't be fooled. There are fakes out there. And those narcissistic personalities really don't have the real love. They're just puffed up. And they uh, aren't able to really love another person because they're so stuck on their reflection. Uh, But to really love yourself is to be kind to yourself and to take care of yourself. And that spreads around to people you know and love. They see that and they cherish that too. Mm, Yeah, I love that, being kind to yourself, right? What is another word for healing? Transformation. If you knew it would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Well, that is a great question. At this point in my life, I'm doing a lot of writing. So I guess I would just speed that up a little bit more. I'd be a little bit more diligent on writing what I need to write. I'm, this, I'm on my fifth book, and it, it, um, sometimes life gets in the way. And I think I'd just be more focused on that. Do you believe in life after death? Oh, yes. What kind of life? Oh, it's a heavenly life. It's filled with love. I will see the people. Oh, John Prine, one who we lost just recently, he he wrote a ballad about what heaven would be like. And it just, it was just charming. And it is about relationships. And it's about the people, my clients that I have just loved, and so many of them I, I've loved. I will see them again. And I'll get a chance to talk to them and see where they're at and who, and. Uh, you know, reconnect with people that I haven't seen for a while. Wow. Uh, What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Well, I know for sure that children and parents 
families are strong venues for growing healthy people. Um, I know that there are stru- some structures in society that are essential for strong uh, endurance and family support is one of them. And uh, uh, it is very important to work toward that family cohesiveness. It has been a meaningful and wonderful conversation, Catherine. Thank you so much for your presence and your wisdom. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you very much, Valeria. Very good questions. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? I have a website, katherinedenhouder.com. And on there are my books that I'm writing. Uh, and also, you know, a click to get out, get them uh, off of Amazon, buy them on Amazon, and then a bio and also current events. Thank you so much, Catherine, again. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Katherine Denhouder, please visit her website, katherinedenhouder.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.